they tell you that it causes just a roller coaster of emotions and that it's so many ups and downs, but it, there's no way to prepare for just how how painful the process can be, how frustrating the process can be. It feels like every time we get to a point where, okay, we're moving forward, this is happening, there's a delay. Christy Calloway and her husband are trying to have a baby. My husband and I both have medical issues that impact our fertility. So we found out very, very early on, like immediately, that we were going to need to do in vitro fertilization. For this couple, in vitro fertilization, or IVF, is their best shot at getting pregnant. So IVF is when you take eggs from the mother, sperm from the father, and you combine them in a Petri dish, and you hope they make healthy little embryos. If they do, you transfer one or more of those little embryos into mom. So, Christy and her husband have some little frozen embryos just waiting to be transferred. They're in a clinic in San Antonio. She was all ready to start the injections when COVID came and non-essential medical procedures were postponed. I expected them to be telling me my lab results and to tell me, okay, go ahead and start them tonight. And instead, they said that all cycles were being put on hold because of the coronavirus. And um, I was, I was, I was devastated. I cried all day long. I felt very powerless because there wasn't anything that we could do to speed this up, speed this along. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, pregnancy in the coronavirus era. So on the one hand, Christy was really frustrated when she heard her frozen embryo transfer would be delayed. But on the other hand, in the middle of a pandemic, it's a really scary time to think about having a kid. I was seeing the news of, you know, infants getting coronavirus and children dying and pregnant women having it. And, you know, I've seen friends who have gone into labor and had babies and couldn't have their loved ones there um, because of the virus. And so as frustrating and infuriating as it was, I also knew that those embryos are in the best possible place. As long as they're frozen in that lab in San Antonio, being looked over by embryologists, like the coronavirus can't hurt them. The world can't hurt them. They are protected. So Christy and her husband settled in, socially distanced, and decided to be as okay as they could be with waiting. Then this week, plot twist, something happened. I got a phone call from the clinic, and it was our nurse, and she said, so how do y'all feel about moving forward with your embryo transfer? And I said, well, when? And she said, next month. And um, I screamed, <laughs> ah, and I ran. My husband was working from home. I ran into the office and told him, and I mean, we're, we're both... Thrilled, 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 thrilled. Immediately called my mother, <laughs> and she was thrilled. 
as parts of the country are starting to relax stay-at-home orders, the restrictions on non-essential medical procedures are also loosening up. Christie's provider decided they could do it. They could take their little frozen MB and transfer it into its new, hopefully, nine-month home. So now, every night, she prepares her body for that embryo transfer. She recorded this long-anticipated moment on her cell phone. She carefully draws a clear liquid into a syringe. Which side did I do last night, left? Yeah. And she taps it to make sure Sure. air bubbles aren't trapped in it. Then her husband injects it into her hip. It hurts a lot for such a little needle. This is my 66th shot that I have done for IVF. Christy really wants this embryo transfer to take. She wants that embryo to burrow right in there and stick. She can't wait to be a mom. So she's thrilled to get started again, though the pandemic did give her pause. The worry set in. Oh, no, what are we doing? Oh, no, is this the right timing? Um, And it's just even before the pandemic hit, and we were preparing the first time for an embryo transfer. There was so much worry involved because again, the embryos are safe as long as they're frozen. (laughs) And when we take one out of that environment and put it into me, what kind of environment am I going to be? There's so much risk. There's just infinite fears. So that anxiety, Christy is feeling those infinite fears. Those are shared by a lot of other women who are either pregnant now or want to be. It's kind of an open question as to how the coronavirus affects pregnancy. First of all, we've just met this virus, like all of us together have just met this virus. And so we Dr. Cynthia Jamfee-Bannerman is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Columbia University. We don't have a history with it. We don't have large amount of data, but we are actively collecting that. Dr. Jamfee works at a hospital in New York City, and soon after the virus arrived there, she started to see COVID-positive patients coming in to give birth. It was actually on March uh, 13th that our first positive case was diagnosed and then delivered uh, several days later. This woman didn't have any COVID symptoms at first, and she ended up having a C-section. After, though, they realized she was COVID positive. This was a very important case because for the whole 24-hour period, during the time that she's being induced, several nurses, doctors, residents, you know, everyone was exposed. Suddenly, they realized all of the staff who normally help someone give birth, they're all at risk. It became clear that we had to think of pregnant women differently. And within the next 24 hours, a very similar case happened where someone went through the labor process, you know, no fever, no no thoughts of anything related to COVID, and then postpartum developed uh, shortness of breath. And we said, oh, let's just send this, and it was positive. Now, for every delivery, the hospital workers are wearing full protective gear. Next, Dr. Jamfi and her colleagues began asking the question, Does this disease affect pregnant women any worse than anyone else? 
So they started to formulate one of the country's most important studies regarding COVID-19 and pregnancy. So usually a respiratory illness is a little bit worse in these women. What we found interestingly with COVID and what we we're trying to characterize uh, was that the disease severity was very similar in pregnancy to outside of pregnancy. So it wasn't worse. It was similar. Okay. In a way, that's good news, but... COVID is bad. So if you're doing the same as somebody else, you're not doing great. Dr. Jamfi says there is still a lot we don't know. And it's going to be years before we fully understand how this virus affects pregnancies and the babies born to infected mothers. This unknowing, this this learning over time. For the last few years, doctors have had other reasons to be concerned about viruses and pregnant women. It all came to a head in 2016. We live in a tropical island. We see those hurricanes forming and we see it growing and growing and coming and you have that anxiety. When is it going to hit us? With what intensity? You never know exactly. Alberto de la Vega is an OBGYN in Puerto Rico. The thing he's comparing to an approaching hurricane is the Zika outbreak. As the virus swept north from Brazil toward the Caribbean, Dr. de la Vega tried to prepare himself and his patients, but... Even though Zika had been around for decades, it was only then becoming known to impact pregnancy. We would get an enormous amount of information and misinformation, but we knew, I mean, this is uh, not the only virus that can affect pregnancy. We had the experience of of other infections, and we know that uh, for most viruses that could affect the pregnancy, There's a window of uh, opportunity where if the virus hits you, that's the worst possible time in pregnancy. Usually it's in the first trimester. An embryo is extremely vulnerable during the first trimester. It is during this 12-week period that all of the major organs and body systems are forming and they can be irreparably damaged. But Zika seemed to be a threat throughout pregnancy. Reports were coming from places like Brazil where uh, babies were developing microcephaly even after birth uh, that created a new stress for us. Microcephaly is a birth defect where the baby's head is smaller than it should be and that causes problems with the brain. Puerto Rico saw the most Zika cases out of anywhere in the U.S. and its territories, and the hospital where Dr. De La Vega works saw more Zika patients than any other hospital. My main concern always was, and still is, the possibility that conditions such as Zika can produce a spectrum of disease. We know because it's rather obvious, you're born with microcephaly, you see uh, uh, pictures of those images of those babies' brains, but what about those babies that have normal-looking brains? The answer to that question, the more subtle problems, the things that only show up when a baby is a toddler or in kindergarten or beyond, it will take years to know these answers. And when you have to tell a patient you don't know, I mean, the guy that is supposed to know, when the patient uh, receives that, that news, she's really confused. She, she has to sometimes go to other sources of information that may not be reliable at all. 
the microcephaly, the brain scarring, all those dramatic findings were just the tip of the iceberg. And as you know how icebergs are, most of the mass, most of the problem is just below the surface. Okay, so I want to be crystal clear here because I don't want to unnecessarily terrify any parents or parents-to-be listening. The similarity we're exploring here is this period of unknowing, this period of learning. Dr. De La Vega says our current situation reminds him of those early days of Zika. Lots of information flooding in from around the world and very little clarity about what it all means. After over a month, two months, three months of uh, dealing with uh, this and reading about it, I feel like I have learned absolutely nothing. So what does he tell his pregnant patients? We have to tell them, just as we tell everybody, be concerned. Be concerned for yourself, first of all. The possibility of you catching it and you uh, developing severe complications is definitely present. Since this virus is so new, women who caught it in their first trimester, they won't even give birth for another couple of months. Those are the women Dr. De La Vega is most concerned about. So... This is gonna take time. We won't know in three months. We won't know in six months. We may start getting uh, information as time goes by, which is very limited, okay? And uh, we'll uh, eventually, eventually uh, have a much clearer picture, probably in a year, probably in a year and a half. Pregnancy. For many, it is a time of joyous anticipation. You're creating another human being right inside your own body. It's the closest thing to magic I've ever experienced. But it's also a time of extreme anxiety. And that's in normal times, you know, what I call the before times. During a pandemic, everything is magnified. I am 40 years old and married to a man who is 40 years old. And um, this is our second pregnancy, but first uh, live one, so to speak. Um, and we had, a, we had a loss last year, so this is our um, subsequent pregnancy. We're not using this woman's name because she doesn't want to get in trouble with or cause trouble for her boss. We'll get to that in a minute. She's 31 weeks pregnant. She knows she's having a boy. So we, we call him like, we call him the dude or our dude or the guy. That was our first like step toward attaching toward him, I think. But I don't think that we have assigned characteristics other than he's pretty active. You know, he's making use of elbows and full forearms. It is kind of nice. Anyone who's had a pregnancy after a miscarriage knows every single minute of a subsequent pregnancy is scary. And during a pandemic, forget about it. I've had, you know, that, that, that magic combo of depression, anxiety. Um, you'd think they wouldn't go together, but boy, do they go together. Um, and that depression when you can just kind of, you feel it in your bones. And you're just weighed down. And you can't, you're like, I guess I'm going to get up and take a walk because that's what's healthy, but wouldn't just lying on the couch for 
six hours be a better option? Um, coupled with anxiety and crying spells. She worries she'll catch this virus that has shut the country down. She worries, will she give it to her baby? If she does, will it hurt her baby? If she does, will it kill her? Will it kill her baby? And on top of all that, there's her job. You see, she's a critical care nurse. She works in an intensive care unit. My name is Nina Martin. I'm a reporter at um, ProPublica. I cover sex and gender issues. And in the last uh, three or four years, a lot of my reporting has focused on maternal health. So a few weeks ago, Nina started investigating how hospitals are treating healthcare workers. One nurse reached out. She was really upset about the fact that her hospital, where she was an ER nurse, was not doing anything about it, wasn't taking the risk seriously. And she was concerned for herself because she thought she was ill. But she was also really concerned for her colleagues because it turned out a lot of her colleagues were pregnant. Nina's first step was to figure out whether this was an issue for just a few nurses here and there or whether she was onto something bigger. We got, I want to say, over 100, I think, responses from healthcare workers across the country in all settings and at every rung of the healthcare ladder. So we got responses from doctors, we got responses from nurses, we got responses from home healthcare workers, from hospice workers, from technicians, x-ray specialists, um, lab workers, receptionists, everybody who is in a healthcare setting. And all of these people told us the same thing. They were terrified. One woman who responded to that survey was the pregnant critical care nurse we heard from just a bit ago. Soon after she got in touch with ProPublica, she was on the phone with Nina. And I started that conversation at like 26 or 27 weeks because I knew, I knew it was coming and I knew I just needed to protect this pregnancy. Um, I felt a lot of guilt, a ton of anxiety, uh, as we all are. Uh, she worked as at a at a large regional medical center affiliated with one of the best known and most highly regarded medical schools in the country. There were major shortages of PPE and also an unwillingness on the part of her managers to move her into a position where she would just be out of harm's way. Caring for someone who was in a car accident or a car crash. And I'm not treating, I'm not caring for them while wearing any PPE, because normally you wouldn't do that. I mean, you know, they're in for a trauma. But anybody could have this. And so I'm being exposed, we're all being exposed, facing this pregnancy uh, in these times of a pandemic and working in a hospital. Um, I think the weight of our previous loss, which losses happen to bajillions of people, but facing the weight of a previous loss, I think it, um, I know that it uh, affected my kind of anxiety about, about working in a hospital when we don't know anything about a pandemic. She went to her to her managers and they, they didn't want to take her off of the, the regular rotation um, at her hospital. She went to her OB 
and asked her OB for, you know, some guidance and asked her OB to, you know, even write her a letter basically saying, you know, um, the permission slip that says, you know, my patient should not be around patients who are sick or might be sick or at high risk of being sick for this virus. And as I understand it, her OB declined to do that. I've heard that from numerous other women as well. But I remember saying to my manager, who she did everything that she could, but, you know, was was limited also. I've been in years of service before and I'll be in years of service in the future. But right now I need these few months to protect this pregnancy. Eventually, this nurse worked things out with her bosses. She's still working full-time in a tele-ICU. She's mostly alone in a room with a camera and a computer monitor, helping nurses in smaller hospitals hours away with their cases. Come on. Come on. Who's a good girl? We're going on a walk, the dog and I. And my resident alien. Uh, normally we'd go for a jog on my days off, but I worked a long shift yesterday and it's rainy and I'm tired. So I live by a river. I live on a river, so you can hear that in the background too. So she's in a better place now. She walks along the river with her dog and the fresh air, it gives her a boost. In social distancing, little things make a difference for all of us, right? But as a nurse, she knows her pregnancy has made her body more fragile. Pregnant people, like, we have, we have distracted immune systems, right? So the immune system is focusing on other things and also focusing on maybe for not, like, not aborting the, <laughs> the turkey in there. Um, so it's not full functioning. Like, I had a cold in first trimester that was like, like... They're like six weeks long. And then there's this new information out of New York suggesting patients with COVID-19 are forming an unusual amount of blood clots. And clots are already a concern for pregnant women. So what does that mean for me if I get it? Am I going to be like just the clottiest woman ever? What can I, are there things I can do now to prevent that? And, you know, nobody knows. We don't know and I don't know and I like to be able to control what I can, especially with regard to my health, like millions of people, and I'm out of control. And do I have to resign myself to dying from a stroke or a pulmonary embolism or something similar because we don't know what to do with this virus? This is kind of a scary one, right? So I reached out to a maternal fetal medicine specialist at UT Health San Antonio to ask him about it. His name is Dr. Patrick Ramsey. We have uh, seen cases in in New York and around the world where uh, there have been reports of increasing risk for thrombosis uh, in patients that have had COVID-19. And we do know that pregnancy is a uh, pro-thrombotic um, uh, type state. Okay, I'm going to translate here. Thrombosis, the formation of a blood clot. Pro-thrombotic, the propensity for pregnant women to develop blood clots. Dr. Ramsey says obstetricians are watching this one closely. 
developed, and there's active discussions going on about should patients receive anticoagulation uh, or prophylactic anticoagulation to potentially mitigate risks that they might be at if they do develop COVID-19. So doctors are thinking about giving pregnant women blood thinners to protect against clots. Ramsey says obstetricians expect to have more information about this particular potential COVID complication over the next few weeks, and he also expects there to be some national guidance about how to handle that risk. Of course, clotting is just one of a myriad of potential complications. And then there are the concerns for everything happening outside the body, like like labor and delivery. How will that go in a time of social distancing during which visitors are essentially barred from hospitals? That's a tough one for a lot of women, according to the director of a perinatal neonatal program at a hospital here in San Antonio, Becky Terrazas. One of the hardest parts is not having their family members with them. Um, Currently, our hospital, uh, University Health System, we allow either um, one significant other or a doula or, you know, a birthing coach, husband, wife, girlfriend, just one other person. Uh, We really try to restrict the amount of people that are coming into the hospital. So basically, instead of having that joyful delivery with 15 family members or your mother and your grandmother and sisters, relatives, you're, you're just not having that. And since so many pregnant women appear to be asymptomatic carriers of this virus, All of them are being tested for it when they arrive at the hospital to deliver. If they have it, their whole labor and delivery team will wear PPE. And this is a hard one. They won't be able to hold their baby. They'll be separated immediately after birth to protect the newborn from being infected. Our pregnant nurse struggles with this possibility. You know, like, I, I want to be skin to skin right away, get that little nugget latching so that my uterus can start contracting and I stop bleeding and all the, like, miraculous, amazing stuff that happens, you know, when you facilitate that after birth. Um, and, and what if we don't get to do that? But if it means, like, saving my little turkey's life, like, obviously I would opt for that, but it, it, it's just scary to think about not having that. So, yes, for her, there's fear. There's a little anger sometimes. And there's grief. Grief that she won't get the labor and delivery that she imagined. Grief that she didn't get that luncheon her mom was planning that she was going to have instead of a baby shower. Grief over the fact that there's no point in even making a birth plan. But the keenest grief comes when she thinks about when she and her husband bring the little dude they've both waited 40 years for home from the hospital to an empty house. I mean, we were planning on having our mothers come and help us with the babies, and they were enthusiastic, and now we're not going to necessarily have that. And it's really, like, like, that's really, it was an important thing for me to be able to invite my mother to come and help care for this new thing. She feels guilty about all this grief, too. After all, she says she's lucky. She's healthy. Her little dude is healthy. She's safe and loved. She's housed and not hungry. And yet she still grieves all those things this pandemic has, or may yet, take away. It took us, you know, we were, we thought we were infertile for 
you know, almost two years and then we got pregnant and we lost it and now you're pregnant and it's sticking and it's great. And it's like, oh, of, of, of friggin' course you're going to have it. <laughs> you're going to have to deliver during a pandemic and you're not sure if you're going to live or if your baby's going to live or if your spouse is going to live. Um, if someday we can sit back and laugh and say, <laughs> remember that time when you had to deliver a baby during a pandemic? I will be um, pouring the drinks and laughing hard and grateful that we survived. It will be wonderful when we as a society can look back at this pandemic, pour a drink, and feel grateful. A vaccine, a cure will get us there. But of course, we still have a long, long way to go down this complicated path. And for pregnant women, the journey remains uniquely scary and uncertain. You see, as a group, pregnant women are currently not a part of clinical trials, which means whenever scientists uncover a cure that causes the world to rejoice, pregnant women are left out. The prevent guidance and the prevent sort of commitment is an effort to make sure that pregnant women are not left behind as vaccines are being developed for epidemic diseases. This is Ruth Faden, the founder of the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. Ruth helped start a group called PREVENT, which stands for Pregnancy Research, Ethics for Vaccine Epidemics, and New Technologies. What we have got ourselves into is this sort of vicious circle that Drugs and vaccines are not tested on pregnant women. They're not evaluated in pregnancy. Then when it comes time to deliver them, there's no evidence or their safety and effectiveness in pregnancy. So here's how it usually goes. People are afraid to include pregnant women in vaccine trials. So when a vaccine is finally developed, the FDA can't approve it for pregnant women. Pregnant women have been left out of a ton of vaccine trials in the past. Zika, Ebola, rubella, the list goes on. And we tried to work our way through the ethics of how to make sure that pregnant women aren't cut out this time around. There are two main reasons for women getting cut out. First, money. Uh, manufacturers are worried about legal liability. Second, morality. Uh, clinicians are worried about harming the baby. Pregnant women are worried about that as well. But that's led to a cycle where people are worried about harming pregnant women or unborn children in a clinical trial, but then vaccines aren't proven to be safe for pregnancy when they become available. So therefore, they're not considered recommended for pregnancy. And it's just this cycle. It's this vicious circle, self-perpetuating circle of being cut out of the scientific development and then being cut out of the benefits. And then by the time pregnant, there's like a lag between when pregnant women get an intervention, a new drug or a new vaccine, and everybody else gets it. If pregnant women are left behind in the race to develop a coronavirus vaccine, it won't just put them at risk. It will put healthcare providers at risk too. Uh, delivery is like a high contact sport right? It, it's considered way up there in terms of medical exposures for the attending physicians and nurses and midwives. It's not, a, it's not a trivial thing, right? There's a lot of stuff that gets expelled during pregnancy that gets aerosolized that can cause real problems. Ruth says vaccinations are more effective if everybody gets them. 
if a swath of the population, like pregnant women, can't get vaccinated, well, that's obviously not good for them, but it's also bad for everyone else. So, there are two things Ruth Faden wants the medical community to start thinking about. Whether it's 12 months from now or it's 18 months from now, when we start having vaccine, or God forbid, 24 months from now, when we start having vaccine in sufficient supply that it's being deployed around the world, there has to be a context, right, in which a pregnant woman will be offered the vaccine. So that's point number one. Make sure a coronavirus vaccine is available to pregnant women down the line. Two, we need to understand what, right, is the experience of being pregnant in COVID right now. So as many ways that we can collect data about what is happening to pregnant women. So that's point number two, collect data now. We need to know where pregnant women will fall on the priority list of who needs the first round of vaccines. So if it turns out pregnant women aren't more at risk from COVID-19, they won't be as high on the priority list as, for example, someone with diabetes or asthma. Conversely, if it turns out that there are concerns for her or for the baby or we're both, then we need that, those data to tell us where pregnant women should be when the vaccine becomes available initially, even if in some period of time we'll have enough for everybody. In the beginning, you can't produce million, hundreds of millions of doses on day one, right? So they're going to have to be priority schemes then again as to who should get the vaccine. Ruth says use the data collected now to consider how at-risk pregnant women are for COVID-19 so that we know if they should be one of the first groups to get an approved vaccine. But equally important, consider pregnant women in clinical trials of a vaccine. Okay, so that's what we know about SARS-2, COVID-19, and pregnancy. We will know more tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. But this is what we know today. We're learning new things every day in real time, and it's just dizzying. In fact, at the time of this recording, we're just learning about a woman in New York who miscarried during the second trimester at 19 weeks gestation. That's about halfway through your pregnancy. The mom had COVID-19. The fetus did not, but there was virus in her placenta. Is that why she miscarried? Maybe. We just don't know. This is extremely frustrating how much we have yet to learn. I can't stop thinking about what Dr. Della Vega, the obstetrician we spoke with in Puerto Rico, the one who cared for all those moms and babies infected with Zika. Remember what he said about what doctors understood in the early days of Zika? He said it was just the tip of the iceberg. He said, you know how icebergs are. Most of the mass, most of the problem is just below the surface. So questions, if you have any, just email us at petridish at dbr.org. That's Petri, spelled like my name, P-E-T-R-I-E. Special thanks this week to Nina Martin from ProPublica for her reporting on this show. It was great. Nina and her colleague Bernice Young published a stunning article in ProPublica on pregnant healthcare workers during the pandemic. Check it out. 
This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound engineer this week was Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon.